Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Ben Hunter. I'm sitting here with Olivia Frico. Hi. And we are sitting across from Susan Hurley, who's come to speak to us about her debut book, Eight Lives. Welcome. Thank you. And <laughs> hi to both of you. Um, could you introduce us to the world of this new novel and um, tell us a little bit how of, of how you've come from, I think it's 30 years in, in medicine and medical research? Makes me sound so old. <laughs> to suddenly become a debut author? So uh, I've always been a keen reader Mm. and had a lurking ambition to write a novel, but it was an ambition that I had to shelve. Finally, I got to a stage in my life where I wanted to to do some more things for myself, and I was thinking about writing a novel, and I read about a drug trial that ended tragically a real-life drug trial that occurred in London in 2006. Uh, Very sadly, uh, the six men who volunteered, six healthy young men, uh, all suffered the same reaction to the drug. Uh, It was a life-threatening reaction. They ended up in hospital on life support. Um, They they were writhing in pain. Their bodies swelled up. Uh, One of them... Had, the head of one of the men uh, swelled to such an extent he was referred to as the elephant man. They needed respiratory and uh, kidney support. And you know, as well as obviously feeling very sorry for them, I thought this could um, be the basis of a story. Mm. People say, write what you know. I had worked in the world of medical research and the pharmaceutical industry for 30 years, as you said, (laughs) and uh, I knew the world, but like a a lot of worlds, a lot of it's boring, Uh, and this is the the sort of dramatic, this is the thing that medical researchers, pharmaceutical researchers, it's the most biggest step that they take, testing a new drug on people, Mm. and here was an instance where it had gone very wrong. Mm. And because that that first trial of a drug is... As, as, as you say, they're, they're healthy participants and they're just checking for some kind of adverse reaction. They're checking for safety. So mm. it's a safety test, and in this case, it wasn't safe. Worst case scenario, yeah. isn't it? So things like that have happened before, but uh, they, don't, they happen very rarely, thankfully. Uh, but in this instance, what was interesting and also sobering was that uh, scientists subsequently claimed that the effect had been foreseeable. Mm. Uh, other drugs that are similar, have similar actions, had caused this reaction, and the pharmaceutical company had, in fact, warned about it in the documentation that they produce for the doctors running the trial. Despite that, they gave the drug virtually simultaneously to the six men. So they, rather than just one man having the reaction, all six did. All six at once? Yes. Oh. Well, they were 10 minutes apart, but for mm. all intents and purposes, that's simultaneously. Mm. They were all sick within an hour and a half. Mm. So, um, you know, what were they thinking? <laughs> uh, there are other things that subsequently came out. The, drug, the dose that was used turned out to be the maximum dose. It mm. saturated what are called the receptors, Uh, Now, they perhaps could have, perhaps couldn't have known that. But um, 
really I thought it was a was the basis of a novel because I could create characters who were involved in different aspects of that step of drug development, test, you know, um, mm. discovering the drug, testing it, planning to test it on uh, people for the first time and examine their motives and cr- create a mystery, a thriller, where at the end of the day the reader knows what happened unlike uh, in the real-life example where there were investigations and various facts were turned up, like the fact that this warning was in the company's own documentation. Normally the general public wouldn't see that. Mm. Um, But at the end of the day, you really don't find out anything about the human motivations. But I felt just from my experience and from... Uh, other instances where first-person accounts have been made of these sorts of things, I could write a story that gave a, a readers a glimpse of the world and what goes on in people's minds. Mm. And you've taken us behind the scenes of this um, very closed doors, very um, squeaky clean clinical industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you've, you've, you've taken this story and you've planted it in Melbourne and you've Credit the character of um, David Tran, mm-hmm. who's we look at um, from different angles. Um, tell me a little bit about him and um, the way you've uh, approached crafting this, because it's 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 different. You've uh, you've got uh, different approaches to the same character, and it's all drip feeding the same story to the reader in a very I'll say addictive matter. <laughs> good. That's good to hear. So, yes, David Tran is, uh, in air quotes, a golden boy. Mm. Uh, he's a former refugee who's become a uh, brilliant medical researcher. He's invented a drug that's pur- purported to be a miracle drug. Um, it's likely to result... After its first test in people, it's likely to uh, result in global fame for David and fortunes for his investors. Um, But before that test, uh, he dies. And so the book examines what led up to that, what was behind it from David's perspective, through the lenses of a number of people in his circle, five people in his circle. So two of our family, his girlfriend and his sister, uh, two are colleagues, his research assistant, his junior research assistant, who uh, provides essentially the through line for, for, for the book. She mm. starts and ends it. And a character called Foxy, who's the fixer for the corporate who invest in David. Uh, And then there's his friend, Miles, his um, childhood friend with whom David made a Faustian bargain as teenagers. Mm. Uh, He's he's my favourite character, I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) So he's um, he's from the born to rule class, but he's very self-aware. He's somebody you might... Well, in Melbourne, you might see him in Collins Street having coffee with his investment banker mates. Yeah, um, so you, it's 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 interesting. This um, we we go behind the scenes in in the medical research, and 
um, we we find um, you know you you kind of spell out about the uh, the kind of stock footage um, advertisements and corporate videos of of uh, people in lab coats yes. pipetting um, samples into into sample tubes and and just the um, banality and the uh, um, kind of squeaky falseness of it um, and it, it and you've created this enormous atmosphere of ego and high stakes and money mm. um is this the kind of uh scenario you found yourself working yeah. <laughs> were you uh on collins street <laughs> for your investors well maybe um, <laughs> look i think there's ego in every world mm. I'm, sure. I'm sure there's ego maniacs in the publishing world uh, <laughs> and you know, the, the, the book's based on a lifetime of experience observing those people, not just in, in the pharmaceutical world, but in, um, in university settings as well. You know, who's, it's all about them. Uh, and in medicine and in, in research, it's, a lot of it's about succeeding, and that's the sort of picture that I tried to, to um, paint, that... Um, you know, there's winners and losers, mm. and you want to be a winner, and that's reflected in a number of ways. The the junior uh, scientist Rosa, who is essentially the key narrator of the book, um, she has setbacks and she's ostracised mm. by her colleagues. And I've, I've I've tried to illustrate that world through simplifying it, but also dramatising it. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, I mean, with any kind of book that's this heavily based on real-life science, it's always you want to get it as accurate as possible because you know people will be watching. Mm-hmm. Did you find it difficult to find that balance between writing a story that was kind of palatable and also accessible to the layperson, but while also pleasing people who might be in that industry? Mm. It's a good question. Um, and it wasn't simple. So I'm not an immunologist, but I'm used to working in different areas. So my work has mainly been in cost-effectiveness analysis, where I look at different uh, drugs and see if they're cost-effective relative to the existing treatment. And I've also done that for public health programs. So those um, projects involve going into a new area, reading about it, identifying experts who I can talk with, cross-checking my take on it all before I go on and write the submission or the paper or whatever I'm doing and then uh, checking back in with them at various stages. So it's sort of an iterative process and that's what I did with the immunology. I read the papers, I have the ability to understand them to different um, degrees. Mm. Uh, I identified people who were willing to talk to me about uh, that area about monoclonal antibodies, which is the sort of drug that was used in London. It's the same sort of drug that appears as a character in the book. Uh, and, you know, I asked them, interviewed them, asked them questions. I was trying to get at what were the conflicts and the challenges in their world. Uh, that you know, I, I mentioned that testing a drug on, on people for the first time is the big dramatic moment. Uh, but there are other points where things can go wrong, so I was interested in what went wrong. Uh, 
Um, I spent some time in a lab, uh, so that's where I focused on the pipetting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then I tried to work out how to present the science, and I just, I've, I've had experience writing what's called plain language summaries, mm. which are as can be as boring as they sound. <laughs> so that, that wasn't really the right approach for a novel. So I tried to present the science using analogy. So at one point, uh, Rosa, the junior scientist, creates a new method to test a drug for something that she believes it's going to be responsible for. And I describe her method as like making quince jelly. <laughs> and uh, so there's two ways of testing whether what I'm doing is working. One is for people to read it who aren't scientists, and so I have people in a writing group that I belong to reading it and giving me that sort of feedback. But the danger is, have I oversimplified? Because I wanted the science to be authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, so a couple of people read excerpts from the novel, so I extracted the science, and there's actually very little of it in there when you actually do that, so you know, specifically talking about scientific methods. So people listening to this thinking, oh, I don't want to read a science te- textbook, mm-hmm. be reassured, it's nothing <laughs> like that. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, ha- I found a very generous immunologist who kindly read the whole book for me and... Uh, to mm. give me the feedback, had, had I got it right, was it authentic? And mm. yeah, sounds very unique. Um, I think uh, when it cro- first crossed our desks, they described it as kind of a pharmaceutical thriller, and we're all kind of just at a loss to compare it to anything, and mm-hmm. we'd never really heard of it before. So, what was it like trying to, I guess, win people round to seeing? that human side of the science and everything that can go wrong, do you think? Well, uh, I mean, there aren't many books like it Mm. because people who work in science and understand it probably aren't going to write a novel. Well, I mean, some do. Maybe they should. (laughs) Yeah, maybe they should. Um, But, for example, Michael Crichton uh, wrote a number of books, the late Michael Crichton wrote a number of books that had quite a bit of science in them, for example, The Andromeda Strain, um, John Le Carre, who, who wrote uh, The Constant Gardener, um, amongst his many other fantastic mm. books. Um, so the, there were precedents. So mm. I wasn't yeah. stepping completely into the unknown. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, I, I guess I'd position it to people as thematically similar to The Constant Gardener because mm. that, that has that sort of dark, side mm. of that industry, the pharmaceutical industry, but it's set in uh, a contemporary world rather than in Africa. Mm. Um, so, you know, the situations and the people, I hope, are even more relatable than people living and working in Africa. Mm. People. Um, but so thematically reminiscent of The Constant Gardener, I hope, but uh, in terms of the style, it's. Some people have said it's similar to the slap, mm-hmm. in that you have multi, multiple narrators. Um, 
you know, it's it's from a multicultural sort of background with completely different perspectives on the one thing in uh, the slap's case, the slap in the case of Eight Lives, it's about the death of the golden boy, David Tran. I think it's an excellent way of pitching it. Mm. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a writer's group earlier, and mm-hmm. um, we were talking before the podcast about um, all the different uh, resources <laughs> you've been going through and, and a very um, avid uh, reading and audiobook listening life yes. uh, <laughs> you've been enjoying. Yes. Um, I just... Uh, I wanted to um, ascertain was this always going to be a novel? Was this um, ever envisaged as a screenplay or or any other different form? It seems like you um, are looking at writing across different forms or have you been very firmly in the um, novel court? Uh, It was never going to be a screenplay because I couldn't imagine as a debut writer somebody <laughs> a, a production company taking a risk mm. on producing something that I'd written basically that was um, um, so I decided I'd write a novel but that said uh, it has been optioned for a for the screen fantastic yeah uh, and we talked about some of my screenwriter inspirations um, I some of the scenes in particular, I, I think quite filmic. Mm. Um, I'd be, it'd be a bit, and, it, it'd be, and it paces itself um, with with film like qualities. It's it's hard to explain um, without really getting into it. But when I think when readers uh, read it, they'll 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 feel like they're in the cinema. <laughs> I mean, a really good way. Right. Well, that's really nice to hear. Um, but. And that was what I was trying to achieve. Mm, good. Uh, and it's e- easy to write it that way uh, if you can picture it in your mind. Mm. Mm. That's fantastic. And, and uh, do you have anything else um, planned um, for a next project or, mm-hmm. um, or, or on the way? Yes, I'm working on an, another novel, um, a thriller. Excellent. Which also has a little bit of a sciencey theme. I think. Uh, I wouldn't say it's quite a mission, but it's something that I'm keen to do, and that's uh, to bring a bit of science to the reading public in a way that's approachable. So people tell me when they read Eight Lives, they learn, they've learned a bit about drug, where drugs come from, as well as being engaged with the characters and engaged with the story. And that's what I've that's what I set out to, to achieve, for people to feel something but learn something as well. And that's what I'd like to do again. Are you writing uh, full-time now or...? Close to. Close to full-time? Yeah, yeah. So would we expect this soon? Or? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sounding like an a editor now. I'm sorry. Editor. <laughs> uh, mm, we'll see. Yeah. Or we'll be waiting with bated breath. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. Susan, thank you very much for coming and spending um, your time with us, and we can't wait for readers to get their hands on this. Thank you. So I'm waiting too. <laughs> <laughs> and you can um, get your hands on Eight Lives by going to booktopia.com.au right now. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, 
head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.